Good morning, everyone. Wasn't that good? Well, it's often been said that what you don't know can't hurt you. And, uh, you know, that, that might be true sometimes, right? I mean, the idea behind it is that if you're not informed, then you can't get overly worked up and worried about certain things. And I think that might be true for things like, for example, eating hot dogs. It's probably best not to know what goes into making the sausages. Um, however, it's, that's not always the case, right? I mean, if, if you go and try to plan a day at the beach, but don't realize that, you know, don't check the weather to see it's middle of the winter, that's not so good. Right? So you want to you have an idea of what's coming along. So one writer, he wrote this. He says, ignorance is not bliss. Ignorance is brutal. The brutality of ignorance is such that it will make you dead while alive. And I think that's a, a very powerful statement. I think God said something similar about how his people perish without knowledge. You know, there's a, there's a great illustration of this idea of ignorance. And it, uh, it's a story about a couple named Ira and Ann Yates. And in 1915, this, this young couple, they're living in West Texas, and they had they'd established a, a rather successful uh, book-selling business. And they were making about $5,000 in revenue each month, which when you count for it back in 1915, no Amazon, no international orders in this little small town, they were rolling in it. They were doing really, really great. But an opportunity came along when this other man had this about 16,000 or more than 16,000 acres of ranch land and, and he thought he would make a deal with Ira and, and Ann Yates. Uh, this land, though, was, he was having trouble offloading the land because the land was not in good shape. It was diseased, and it was dirty, and nothing was growing on it. And there was even dispute over the boundaries of this land. But Ira Yates was attracted to it. The, the romance of being one day a, a rancher and a cowboy was so appealing to him that despite all the concerns about the land, despite that he'd have to pay an additional $45,000 just to pay off the mortgage, he was willing to trade the bookstore for the land. And uh, so sure enough, he did it. And then he bought some more land to, to total up about 20,000 acres of ranch land here. And he was going to begin his dream. However, it didn't go well. Despite his skills, despite his expertise, despite his determination, the land was a horrible. It was so dirty, so greasy, so diseased, it just wasn't going to happen. And so they went from rolling in it with $5,000 a month in revenue from the book sales to now penny pinching, right? The equivalent of, of clipping coupons, just trying to get by, eating kind of rice for breakfast sort of idea. And they couldn't make it work. And so they, you know, seeing the inevitable of bankruptcy, they decided to make a last ditch effort and they invited some, some people to come onto the land and drill for uh, oil, being in West Texas. And so they started drilling uh, four oil wells and on the fourth one, they struck black gold, right? Texas tea, they found oil. One of the largest oil deposits, in not just West Texas, but all the world. Well, immediately, Iron Ann, they signed these, these agreements and royalties and so forth so they could start to collect money off of every barrel of oil that left the land. And, and instantly, it said, they became millionaires. So that was the headline. Overnight millionaires for Iron Ann Yates. And that's true. They instantly became millionaires, just not the way the paper thought it was. See, the paper thought they instantly became millionaires the moment they signed all those royalty deals and the oil started to come off the land. But the reality is, when did they become millionaires? The moment they traded the business for the land. 
but because they didn't know about all the wealth, all the riches that were stored in the land, they ended up living like beggars, struggling to get by. And I think that's such a, a great illustration of, of what a lot of people experience. I mean, if that's true for them, how much more serious is it when you and I are ignorant to the wealth and the riches that are available for you and I in Jesus Christ? So this morning, we're going to look at a number of verses, and, and we're going to try to understand some of this wealth and riches. But before we begin, let me ask you this question. How many people brought one of these? Nobody brings them anymore, right? We don't use this anymore. But, oh, we got one. We got one. Excellent. You can come to the front, Sue. You're, at, you're, you're more loved, I guess, by Jesus. But how many people have their phones with them, right? Yeah, we all have our phones, right? So the beauty of that is now you can put your Bible on your phone. And, you know, there's lots of great apps, YouVersion's one, uh, Olive Tree Bible, Blue Letter Bible. There's all kinds of wonderful free apps out there that you can use. And, um, and it becomes really handy because, and here's why, if you forget this, and then it goes to lost and found, and then it sits there for about two months, everyone knows you didn't read your Bible for two months, right? So the beauty is you don't forget your phone. Right? So if you want, grab your phone and, uh, and open up to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. You can uh, use your app there. Turn doesn't work anymore. So I don't know if it's tap or slide or what, but, but find your way to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. You can read along with me. We're going to read verse 18, 17 and 18. Here it says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ will be made void. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Let's pray. Father, we, we invite you through your Holy Spirit to come and open up our eyes to this incredible truth. That, that we would see and understand uh, what you were trying to communicate to our Corinthian brother and sisters 2,000 years ago because it's still relevant and still powerful for our lives today. So we love you. We thank you for that you're here, you're with us, and we're looking forward to what you're going to show us and teach us. Let us leave here not ignorant to what we have in you. In your name we pray, amen. So verse 18 there begins the, the word of the cross or the message of the cross or some talk about the wisdom of the cross, or even the teaching of the cross, is foolishness to those who are perishing, those who are struggling through life. And, and while that's true, I think of those who have outright rejected God, that there is a struggle and a perish that they are and will experience, I, I think it's also true of some believers, that there are some Christians that are ignorant to the wonderful good news that the cross has accomplished. And so like Ira and Ann Yates, they, they sit upon this incredible wealth of riches in Christ. And I mean much more than financial wealth. I mean real, real wealth and riches in for life today. And they end up missing it. They miss out on it because they're ignorant to it. They do not know what they possess. One of my favorite authors, a man named Martin Lloyd-Jones, he, he has this great quote. He said once that superficial views or superficial understandings of the work of the cross will lead or produce superficial lives. What a great quote that is. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to live a superficial life. There's too much hurt and there's too much pain in this world. I don't want to just go through it needlessly. I want to experience something that matters. And so Paul here, he's writing to us, to those who, who are being saved. 
Notice the tense Paul uses there. He, he, typically, when we talk about salvation, we talk about salvation as a past tense verb, right? I was saved, right? I was saved at age five, or I was, I was saved at age 18, or I was saved at high school or college, or, or I was saved when I went on an all-night bender and woke up hungover and had a tattoo on it that says, I heart country music, and I realized I needed to get my life in order, right? So we all have our own story. We all have our own, our own testimony, and we rightfully refer to our salvation as a past tense moment. There was a moment in time where everything changed. There was a moment in time where you turned to Jesus and you accepted this wonderful gift of salvation from him. Paul had such a moment, right? You remember the story of Paul? He's, he's riding on the, his donkey with a couple of soldiers on his way to Damascus, ready to go and, and arrest and, and persecute and, and imprison these, these people who were the followers of the way, followers of Jesus Christ, this so-called blasphemous faith that Paul was persecuting. And on his way, Jesus speaks to him in a loud voice. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And, and Paul says, who are you? And he says, I'm Jesus, the one you're going after. And so Paul, at that moment, he realizes what he's done and, and he completely repents, turns away from his old way of living and he decides now to follow the one that he is persecuting. In that moment, everything changed for Paul. He had a moment of salvation. What's interesting, that's not what he's talking about here. Again, to those of us who are being saved, what tense is being? Is it past? Is it future? It's present. He's talking about presently being saved in, in verse 18. So he's not talking about his road to Damascus experience. Instead, he's referring to what he's going through today. What he's, what he, what he's facing some 15 plus years since he was saved in the struggles now that he's writing to the Corinthians. And he says to him that this, the, the power of God is found in the message of the cross. Think about that. That he's currently being saved because what the cross teaches him and tells him and, and reveals to him. Because that is the power of God. I don't know about you, but that draws my intrigue. I want to know about the power of God. So we need to understand the cross. We can't be ignorant to it, what happened at the cross. So let me start by asking the question, what happened on the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ? What was accomplished there? And, and by the cross, just so we're clear, I don't want to limit it just to the death of Jesus. I think the cross refers to his death, his burial, and his resurrection. That's all part and parcel in what Paul understands the cross and, and can't be really separated. And so what was accomplished on the cross? It's a question that I ask people all the time that come for me for counseling. And, and I ask that question because while we all claim as Christians that the cross is central to our faith, I don't think we really understand it. I don't think we understand the significance of it because it's, the I believe, the single most under, underreported truth in all the New Testament. What God accomplished on that cross. And I say that because when I, when I see and I hear how Christians talk about how they are to live, they don't talk about the cross. Instead, what do we talk about? We often talk about behavior. We talk about how we're to, how we're to act and, and how we're to, to model our lives around how Jesus lived. But, but listen, Paul did not write that he's being saved by modeling his life after Jesus. That's not where he says. He, he says instead, it's not the moral and ethical teaching of Jesus that saves us. 
It's the cross of Christ. And that's really good news for you and I, because if it was the moral and ethical Jesus, uh, moral and ethical teachings of Jesus that saves you and I today, then we would be the most pity to fools. I really believe that. You see, if, if, if Christianity was simply following the model of Jesus, we would be really no different than every other religion out there. That Jesus would just be the next, another Buddha, another Gandhi, another, any kind of, uh, of religious leader out there where all of us are trying to follow his teachings, hoping that that will read, or allow us to reach enlightenment and contentment and success and be prosperous, prosperous in this world. But that's not it. It's way more than that. And the cross changes all that. The cross both communicates to us both bold statements as well as it tells us about the powerful changes that took effect. So let's start with what the cross says. And remember, the cross is much more than just the death of Jesus. It includes his burial and his resurrection. And it's that last part that's so critical, that's so important that we understand. You see, if Jesus only died but never rose again, he would simply be another martyr. That's all that he'd be. But he didn't. Instead, he lives today. And I know you've heard that before, but don't miss out the significance of that truth. You see, if you kind of look at the apostles and how they went and they spread the gospel, they didn't go running around the countryside repeating the parables and the stories that Jesus told them. They had a message. What was their message everywhere they went? This man who you crucified, he lives today. And that was it. That was their message that they taught. That was the message they proclaimed was a resurrected Jesus. Because what was so unique about this was he came back from the grave. There have been many other, you know, leaders of movements have been killed, but this one still lives. And it was a point of fact that could not be challenged. Now, it was challenging that day, right? They, They try to spread these rumors that the... Uh, the, these fishermen had gone and overpowered these, these trained professional soldiers, rolled back this heavy stone and stole the body of Christ. And, and they tried to spread a rumor about all that, trying to discount the cross. And we see it today as well, where people try to discount the reality of Jesus. And they say, well, he was a good teacher and, and it's a good person to model after, but he, it's not real. He didn't really exist. And yet there is more facts about Jesus Christ than there are about all kinds of other facts in history that we accept. And so we have to keep that in mind that this was a true fact, a true, a true event that took place. But what the cross is saying to you and I, it speaks of judgment. It speaks of my judgment. Now, at first blush, that might not sound very inviting and encouraging, but, but give me a minute here. One of my heroes of the faith is a man named Ray Steadman. And, and I love how Ray Steadman says about the cross. He says this. He says, the cross is significant in Christianity because it exposes the fundamental conflict of life. The cross gets down below all our surface attempts at compromise and cuts down to the basic difference behind all human disagreement. Once you confront the cross and its meaning, you find yourself unable to escape that final basic judgment of life as to whether you are committed to error or committed to truth. You see, the cross was way more than just a way for God to demonstrate his love for us, although that's true. 
It says that in Romans 5, 8, that God demonstrates his love towards us and that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. But the cross also pronounces judgment. A judgment that tells me, number one, the price of my sin. The price of that sin is my death. That the only way to pay or ransom me from that death is through another death. And so the cross pronounces the judgment of sin. But listen to that. Because this fact is so glorious. The fact that Jesus has already died means that judgment has already been pronounced. It's already been taken care of. It's not something that I need to fear or be worried about what's to come. It's what God has already accomplished. Meaning that because Jesus has already paid my debt, because God's already dealt with my sins, I don't have to worry about it anymore. It's already been completely paid for on the cross. The cross is the place where I have already received forgiveness. Again, Romans 8 and verse 9 this time. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. You see, you and I never have to worry about the wrath of God, ever. You never have to worry about God being disappointed with you, God being frustrated with you, or, or being ticked off or annoyed with you. Never, ever again, because all of that was poured out onto our Lord Jesus Christ on that cross. He's paid the price because you and I couldn't. We couldn't do it. But he's done that. He took your and I's punishment and the judgment so we could go free. It's already been done. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 4 says this. Now I have made known to you, brethren, the gospel, the good news which I preached to you, which also you received and which you also stand, by which also you were saved. If you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised in the third day according to the scriptures. You see, it's because of the cross we've been forgiven. That's really important to understand. See, we use this term forgiveness so often, but I don't know if we always understand what it means because we have a human understanding of forgiveness, but do we have a God understanding of forgiveness? You see, for God, the forgiveness that he's given to you and I is absolute. It's already been done. And what I mean by that is it's because the basis of the forgiveness is not on me. It's not when I go to him and ask for forgiveness. It's not when I clean up my life and I, and I overcome the sin that I become forgiven. It's not when I've repented. It's not when I've confessed. It's none of that. Forgiveness is based on Jesus. It's based on the cross. It's based on the blood of Christ. And because of that, you and I have already been forgiven. Now, some people would call this the atoning work or the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ where his blood has covered our sins. And, and I hear it from Christians often. Oh, that's, it's under the blood. It's okay that it's under the blood. Jesus is atoned for that. I'm here to tell you that none of that happened. Jesus never covered. He never atoned for a single one of your sins. You see, what Jesus did is far better. What Jesus did is he propitiated our sins. 
problem is we don't know what propitiation means. I mean, when, when you hear the word propitiation, the response is either God bless you or I'm sorry to hear that. Is it contagious? Right? We have no idea what that word propitiation means. And, and so we get confused by that. And so what happened is the, the translators of one Bible, it was the, the nearly inspired version, they, they took that word propitiation and substituted it with the word atonement. And the problem with that is atonement, this covering, that's what atonement means. It's an old covenant word. It belongs in the Old Testament. It speaks to what the blood of lambs and goats did. See, whenever a Jew, whenever he would sin, whenever he'd make a mistake, he'd have to go and offer a sacrifice for that sin. I stole your ox, so here's your ox. I'll give it back to you, and now I go and I offer a sacrifice for what I did. And so that blood from the lambs and goats, they would atone, they would cover the sin. The problem with a covered sin is it's what? It's still there. It could still be brought out. But that's not what Jesus did. Jesus did not cover your sins at all. He did something far better. He propitiated the sin. And the word propitiation literally means a wrath-averting sacrifice. Meaning because of that sacrifice, that wrath that would have been there because of the sin has been taken away. It's now gone. Simply put, it means that Jesus took away your sin. He didn't cover it up. He took it away. Think about it. John the Baptist. In, in, in John chapter 1, verse 29, he sees Jesus coming over the hill. And he says, behold, the Lamb of God. I mean, the moment he says Lamb of God, every Jew in his mind, what's he thinking of? Passover sacrifice. The Lamb that was slaughtered for all the sins. Immediately, that's what they're drawn to. He says, behold, the Lamb of God, the sacrifice for your sins. Behold, Lamb of God, who covers your sin. It's not what he says. Behold, Lamb of God, who takes away your sin. And you see, that's so much better. I still remember the first time that truth that he didn't cover, but he took away my sin ever kind of impacted me. I never saw it for the first time. You see, I was, I was new into the ministry, and so I was, I was panicking. Because every day I had people coming to me with their problems and they were looking for, to me for some answers. And so I was panicked knowing that I didn't have the answers myself. So I threw myself into the word of God and I was studying it, trying to figure out how am I going to help these people. And, and I saw this incredible truth that he didn't cover, he took away. Well, I went running upstairs to go tell Viarda Joy, my wife, and, and, I, and I said, listen to this, this is incredible. Jesus didn't cover our sins. He, he took them away. And she looked at me and she says, same thing. I said, no, it's not the same thing. It's so much better, you know, to cover. It's still there, but taken away, they're gone. She looked at me, what's the difference? It's, it's the same thing. And this went back and forth for about five minutes. Took away, same thing. It's not, it is. Back and forth about five minutes, at which point I just kind of walked away. I said, Lord, have mercy on a sin-sick soul. I think that probably says more about my ability to communicate at the time than her. But we just kind of left it. And then a few days go by, and out of the blue, while she's just sitting there, some memories of her past came to her. Specific memories. Memories of mistakes she had made. Sins that she had committed. Immediately, how does she begin to feel? She feels guilty. She feels miserable. Right? She feels awful. And, and she's down on herself. She feels like sin on a stick. Doesn't she? And in the midst of all that misery and that, that feeling horrible... Jesus whispers into her ear, I took that away. It's gone. 
you don't have to worry about it anymore. And that's what's so incredible, what God has done. He didn't cover for it to be resurfaced to you. He says, I took it away. In Psalm 103, verse 12, he says, I've removed you as far away from your sin as far as the east is from the west. I am so glad he said east-west, not north-south. Because you think about it. If you travel north and eventually hit the North Pole and you keep going, which direction are you going now? Going south. You hit the South Pole and you keep going, which direction are you going now? You're going north. What's the distance between north and south? It's half the circumference of the earth. But if you go east, how long are you going east for? If you go west, how long do you go west for? So what's the distance between east and west? Infinity. See, God knew the world was round long before man did. He has separated you as far from your sin as east is from the west. The writer of Hebrews, picking up on this, this idea here, he, uh, he quotes twice, he quotes Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 31, in verses 31 to 34, God gives us this incredible promise of this new covenant. And he says, this, this new covenant, which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, I will forgive their iniquity and their sin, I will remember no more. You know, too often we think of that verse and we think that I will remember your sins on judgment day. That's how we think about it. That we, we kind of imagine that, that there will be a day where we stand before God and we stand before um, all of heaven and, and, you know, my friends and my family and on this giant screen, my life is going to be portrayed. But it's not just my life. Because, you know, if you're going to watch my whole life, you're going to see me sleeping. You're going to see me going to the bathroom. And that's just weird and creepy. No one needs to see that. So it's the edited version of my life. But what really edited means, it's going to be the highlights of my life. And by highlights, what do I mean? My sin, right? So all of my sin is going to be portrayed there on the screen for everyone to see. Isn't that exciting? Can't you wait to get to heaven? Right? Your whole sin history up there for all to see. That's why I'm going to try and go after Jeremy because I figure after Jeremy, everyone will look good. Right? So that's how I kind of envisioned it. And the worst part of it is it's not just all of heaven. My mom's going to see all that. That's what's the worst part of all of it. Right? Does that sound like heaven? No. He says, I will remember your sins no more. That, that doesn't mean that, that God's going to play dumb when you try to talk to him about one of your sins. I, I don't know what you're talking about. I have no memory of that. That's not what it means because he knows everything. What it does mean, though, is that he'll never hold it against you. He'll never evaluate you. He'll never judge you based on your sin, based on what you've done. Instead, how does he judge you and I? based on the cross. And again, that's what the cross is. It's a place of judgment. But here, it, it's a judgment that says that you are now clean. You are now forgiven. You are now pure. Because he doesn't hold it against you anymore. Here's the problem. Here's my problem. While God doesn't hold my sins against me, 
I do. I can remember so many of my sins and, and, and they're brought to my memory and they just, just rip into me. I remember this one story when I was, I was in grade seven. And uh, my teacher that year was a, was a lady named Miss, Mrs. Monster. And she was the best. She was so good. I mean, at this school that I was going to, uh, you know, so many of the teachers there were old. I, I think my, my grade three and grade four teacher, Mrs. Kirk, I think she retired about 10 years earlier and they kind of pulled her out of retirement. More than that, though, I think she died two years earlier and they were just using animatronics to keep her going, right? I mean, she was so old. She knew Moses, right? So, so I, I had her. And then when I got to grade seven, I got this young, fun, vibrant teacher named Mrs. Monster. I mean, you know, with a name like that, you would think it was like straight out of central casting for a B-horror movie and she would be scary. Far from it. She was great. I still remember like she would constantly create these rhymes to help us learn stuff. So I, to this day, I still remember when dividing fact, fractions to the rule comply, turn the seconds upside down and simply multiply, right? Every time I divide fractions, I have that place in my mind. Great teacher, right? Wonderful teacher. She was awesome. So much fun, right? So as you can imagine, she was the first teacher I had a crush on, right? So, well, one day, it was during winter. And I remember it was winter because, like, you know, snow on the ground and we're out in the 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 parking lot playing. We didn't have a playground at this school, but we had a massive parking lot, which was great because it let us play every imaginable sport you can come up with, right? And often we were playing hockey. We'd bring our hockey sticks on the bus and stuff. But this one, one day, we're not playing any sports. We're just kind of hanging out uh, by the cars on the edge of the parking lot. And, uh, and I remember this, I think it was like grade one or maybe it was even a kindergarten kid, just, just coming up annoying me. And I, I, don't, I don't think it was snowing, throw, throwing snowballs or anything like that. I think it was just talking trash. And the worst part about dealing with a, someone in grade one is you can't really fight back with words because A, either they don't understand it or B, they just frankly don't care. So he just kept coming at me and coming at me and, and you know, just pushing all my right buttons. And I got so frustrated, I just pushed him. I just pushed him away from me. Now, if, if we were maybe a few steps back and I pushed him, it would have been fine. But where we were located and how I pushed him, and I didn't push him lightly, so I kind of pushed him away. He stumbled back and he cracked his head on one of those concrete barriers at the end of the parking lot. And immediately I can start to see the, the, the snow turn red. Now inside, I'm just panicking. I'm thinking, well, maybe it's not that bad. Maybe, maybe he just landed on a small rodent and it's the rodent's blood. Maybe that's what's happening, right? And so I'm like, I'm worried. I'm panicking. So, so I did the only thing that made sense to me at that point. I ran. I just walked away, hoping that what I saw wasn't real. Well, 10 minutes go by and all of a sudden, my favorite teacher, Mrs. Monster, calls me into the school. And she said, what happened? What'd you do? And I, I you know, I start protecting myself, right? I, I try to minimize it. I try to say this. Well, I wasn't that bad. You know, I think he just tripped. And, and, and she, she really didn't need to say anything to me. She just looked at me with disappointment. And that was enough. That here was this great teacher that I looked up to, that I had admired and enjoyed. And she just said to me with one look, you're such a failure. You're such a disappointment. What have you done? What's wrong with you that you would bully this kid six years younger than you? 
She didn't need to say anything. And so I was just ripped up inside. Because now, in my mind, I'm thinking that all of this is defining who I am. That there's something wrong with me now. And that I can't undo it. I can't take it back. That's the worst part. I can't go back and instead of pushing the kid, just sort of walking away. I can't do any of that. And so now this is, this is like a permanent mark on my record, it feels like. I'll always have to deal with this, this failure. Except for the cross. The cross takes what this is permanent and, and wipes it clean. It takes what is unforgivable and makes it completely forgivable. Because again, he didn't just cover my sin so it could be brought back and thrown in my face from time to time. Instead, what he did is he took the penalty of my sin onto himself, was crucified and buried and resurrected as a statement that says, you and I are forgiven. Completely. It doesn't matter what you did. It doesn't matter who you did it with, how many times you did it. It doesn't even matter that you'll likely do it again and again and again. Because the forgiveness is based on the cross, not based on you cleaning up your act. So let's apply this, right? Paul says this is the first thing you and I need to know about the cross is that, that we are forgiven. But it's not the last thing we need to know about the cross. It's the first thing we need to understand. But wouldn't it be better if we didn't sin in the first place? Wouldn't it be better if we could find a way to not screw up and, and find victory over the temptation rather than give into it and then have to get forgiven? Wouldn't that be better? Well, Paul explains that. The problem is we don't have time to cover it today. So you're going to have to come back in two weeks. And then we'll look at that. But for today, what I want to look at is just this first aspect. The first thing we need to know about the cross is that you and I are forgiven completely, entirely. And so what is to be our response to this, this wonderful truth? It's really simple. It's to say thank you. It's to, to place our faith and our trust in it. In, in, in sorry, Isaiah 1, verse 18, God speaking, he says, come now, let us reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, they'll be as white as snow. They, though they are red like crimson, they'll be as white as wool. That word there for reason literally means let's argue. Let's debate. Let's, let's wrestle this one out. And basically what he's saying is every time you feel that guilt, you feel that I, I can never be forgiven, I can never be good enough, I can never be clean. Whenever you feel that weight upon you, he says, come, let's wrestle that one out. You argue for that and I will argue against you because I'm going to argue about the cross. And he's going to point our attention back to that. So the next time you start to feel guilty, that guilt of, that leads to no hope and no future and you think that, that you're forever been marred or, or stained, think about the cross. Think about what God has accomplished there to have set you and I free. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
We, we celebrate what you have done on that cross. The freedom that you've given to us. That it's not about what we do anymore. It's about what you have already done. Would you, would you remind us of this truth over and over again? That we wouldn't be ignorant to how forgiven and how pure we really are. That we would know that because of your grace and what you have done, we can now have been made worthy and clean to actually stand in your presence. Without fear, without shame, without insecurity, but knowing that because of what you've done, you will fully embrace us and love us. May we walk in that freedom, Lord Jesus. We thank you for what you've done. In your name we pray, amen.